I wouldn't be able to get that job at Jamba Juice that I was undocumented and that actually a lot of things that I was about to face would be pretty difficult because I didn't have papers, which is how they put it. When I was planning to go to college was the first time I understood that I was undocumented. I didn't have a social security number and I couldn't get financial aid. I had no papers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Immigration Chats with Dejas and Kalpana. My name is Dejas Shah, and both my co-hosts, Kalpana Peribotla, and I are U.S. immigration lawyers. We started this podcast to focus on big, current issues in U.S. immigration with an eye on history. The soundbites and political talking points on certain issues often obscure their historical roots. In this episode, we continue speaking about presidential power and focus on one of the biggest issues in immigration, deferred action, which is linked to prosecutorial discretion. Many of our listeners are likely to be familiar with DACA, a program that has often been in the news and was an important election issue since it was first created by the Obama administration in 2012. In this episode, we will examine the historical underpinnings of deferred action which is the basis for the DACA program. To begin with, it would be helpful to explain what DACA is. So DACA is a program that President Obama created in 2012 with the goal of halting the deportation of young people who entered the U.S. as children and were undocumented. They're commonly known as DREAMers. President Obama took this executive action because Congress had failed to provide permanent relief through the DREAM Act despite the bipartisan support for it. Here is President Obama announcing the DACA program in June 2012. This morning, Secretary Napolitano announced new actions my administration will take to mend our nation's immigration policy, uh, to make it more fair, more efficient, and more just, specifically for certain young people, sometimes called dreamers. Now, these are young people who study in our schools, they play in our neighborhoods, they're friends with our kids, they pledge allegiance to our flag. They are Americans in their heart, in their minds, in every single way but one, on paper. They were brought to this country by their parents, uh, sometimes even as infants, and often have no idea that they're undocumented until they apply for a job or a driver's license or a college scholarship. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you've done everything right your entire life, studied hard, worked hard, maybe even graduated at the top of your class, only to suddenly face the threat of deportation to a country that you know nothing about with a language that you may not even speak. That's what gave rise to the DREAM Act. It says that if your parents brought you here as a child, you've been here for five years, and you're willing to go to college or serve in our military, you can one day earn your citizenship. And I've said time and time and time again to Congress that send me the DREAM Act, put it on my desk, and I will sign it right away. 
effective immediately. The Department of Homeland Security is taking steps to lift the shadow of deportation from these young people. Over the next few months, eligible individuals who do not present a risk to national security or public safety will be able to request temporary relief from deportation proceedings and apply for work authorization. Now, let's be clear, this is not amnesty, this is not immunity, this is not a path to citizenship, it's not a permanent fix. This is a temporary stopgap measure that lets us focus our resources wisely while giving a degree of relief and hope to talented, driven, patriotic young people. Since DACA was first created, approximately three-quarter million individuals have benefited from the program by becoming doctors, lawyers, engineers, graduating from college or high school, and otherwise becoming productive members of society. One of these individuals is a gentleman named Anulapo Opanagu, a Nigerian citizen. My name is Anu. I am a Nigerian-born citizen. I moved to the United States around the age of 11. I remember starting in the fifth grade when I came to the U.S. I grew up on the north side of Chicago. With me in the U.S. are my parents, my three siblings, all of whom were documented except for me. So what was it like for you growing up in the U.S. as a child? Did you think about your immigration status? It was actually pretty nice. I went to an IB school. There weren't very many immigrants, or for that matter, minorities, but I felt very welcome. I didn't really think about my immigration status until I was ready to go to college. So why did you finally think about your immigration status? Well, when I was planning to go to college was the first time I understood that I was undocumented. I didn't have a social security number. I couldn't get financial aid. I had no papers. And how did this information affect your college experience? When I finally became more aware of my status, I had to rethink my college choices. I wasn't going to be able to get financial aid, and so I went to Chicago State on the south side of Chicago instead of pursuing other choices I originally had. I was able to get scholarships through, and so Chicago State uh, made the best sense at the time. Did your immigration status cause you to worry about the future? I probably was worried, but looking back, I was more focused on excelling in my studies. I was raised in a Christian home and told to just control what you can control and have a level of faith. And so while I knew in the back of my mind that, man, I could come out of school and not be able to get the job because of my immigration status, I also knew that I needed to do well in school so that if my immigration status were to change, I needed credentials to show that I was qualified for anything I wanted to do after that. So at that point in time, were you connected to a larger community of undocumented individuals in the U.S.? Absolutely not. At that point, it was actually hush-hush about it. Don't tell anyone, just kind of keep your head down and get things done. I had no clue there were other kids like me. You know, I thought I was kind of on an island by myself. I felt a bit embarrassed about it. My friends were getting jobs, new opportunities. I didn't want to bring attention to myself or feel like I had to explain all of this. Did you apply for DACA as soon as the program was announced? I applied right away. So Anu, what does 
having DACA mean to you? A lot. It's given me an opportunity to truly have a shot at the American dream. And, you know, that may sound cliche or whatever, but that's my reality. My parents, my family, my community had supported me and really invested in me. And DACA gave me a way to put that investment to work. I remember, you know, when I got the confirmation, I called my mom. It was around my birthday, late December of 2012. I had one more semester in undergrad and I called my mom and I told her, mom, the work authorization came in and I can finally put my GPA to work. And you know, she laughed and she prayed and she was just so relieved. DACA has allowed me to really earn a living to support causes that I care about in, a, in my community and really to have a voice in the United States of America. Despite the challenges I've faced, the United States has taught me and kind of made me who I am today. So notwithstanding Anu's comments, DACA is not a legal status, since only Congress can create a legal status. DACA is simply the government's decision to exclude an individual from deportation proceedings and to give that individual temporary work authorization. Essentially, think of this as the government acting as a prosecutor and deciding whom to charge and not to charge. DACA also extends a concept that has existed in U.S. immigration law for many years, the idea of deferred action. So, Tejas, most people may be surprised to learn that one of the first known uses of deferred action was Beatles legend John Lennon. He was represented by an attorney named Leon Wilds. This was a volatile time in American history. John Lennon was an opponent of the Vietnam War, and President Nixon was not a fan of such a high-profile dissenter. Our government used an old marijuana conviction as an excuse to deport John Lennon. I asked Professor Shoba Wadia, a well-known professor at University of Pennsylvania Law School and a national authority on deferred action and prosecutorial discretion, to provide some background on this case. Professor Wadia, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. You have written the seminal book on deferred action titled Beyond Deportation. In your book, you link the history of DACA and deferred action to the case of Beatles musician John Lennon. I'm sure most people would unlikely know of John Lennon's immigration battles to remain in the United States and how his case unearthed a private immigration policy of prosecutorial discretion. Can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of the John Lennon case and how his attorney pursued this alternative remedy? Sure. And his attorney, Leon Wilds, uh, also wrote the foreword to my book, Beyond Deportation. And he was in a lawsuit with the federal government for many years, demanding policy or at least case files on people who had been processed for and granted deferred action, then called non-priority status at the time. And the a genesis of the case itself was that Yoko Ono and John Lennon were in the United States and they were in a search of uh, Yoko Ono's child and were seeking extensions on their tourist visas. And fast forward, John Lennon was placed in deportation proceedings based on an old 
marijuana conviction. And one strategy that his attorney had was to seek this non-priority status or deferred action. And, and the theory really behind prosecutorial discretion during the John Lennon era and now are quite the same, where the government has limited resources. So choices have to be made about who you're going to target for enforcement and who you're going to leave on the back burner. And so the argument by Leon Wilds was that here's someone who should be a low priority for immigration enforcement. And we know that the agency has a history and practice of doing this. And INS denied it, articulated that there was no such policy. But ultimately, uh, Leon Wilds was able to, through FOIA litigation, Freedom of Information Act litigation, uncover over 1,800 case files of individuals who had been processed for deferred action and use that as a baseline for requesting the same for John Lennon. Professor Wadia went on to share with me that after the John Lennon case, the government finally began issuing formal guidance and agency memos on when to exercise prosecutorial discretion. These policies against deportation were largely based on humanitarian considerations. Despite these policies, deferred action was still applied in a haphazard manner and was often left to the judgment of individual ICE agents and government attorneys. This all changed during President Obama's second term in office. Yes, that's right. In 2011, the director of ICE under President Obama, John Morton, issued a memo on prosecutorial discretion. Now known as the Morton Memo, it seemed to acknowledge what had been obvious for so long. The U.S. doesn't have the resources to deport every single individual who is currently in the country without a valid legal status, nor is it good policy to do so. This memo outlined priorities for deportation and also outlined priorities for deferred action. I again spoke with Professor Wadia about the Morton Memo. Professor Wadia, as we were setting up this podcast, I discovered that one thing that we had in common was my client, Mandeep Chahal. Mandeep was a young dreamer who was brought to the U.S. by her mother at the age of six, and her case is the first publicly documented use of the Morton Memo. The Morton Memo came out on Friday, June 17, 2011, and at that time, Mandeep was in my office with her best friend from high school as we were planning our next steps, which included setting up a public campaign to prevent her deportation. She was scheduled to be deported on Tuesday, June 21st, and over that weekend, Mandeep and her friend launched this massive national campaign, which resulted in thousands of people faxing in and calling their congressional representatives. So I filed a request for prosecutorial discretion the following Monday using the Morton Memo, and I also filed an emergency stay with the Board of Immigration Appeals. And unfortunately, when that appeal was denied, I started driving to San Francisco on Tuesday morning to file an appeal with the Ninth Circuit. And literally en route, I received a phone call from the Chief Counsel for ICE San Francisco telling me that they were halting the deportation of Mandeep and her mother, largely due to the Morton Memo. Mandeep's story was eventually told on the Senate floor during its first hearing on the DREAM Act. 
You had cited Mandeep in your book in discussing the limitations of the Morton Memo. Can you describe why young dreamers like Mandeep felt that the Morton Memo wasn't enough? Well, that's a great story. And just congratulations to you and your client. I think that, you know, part of the criticism around the Morton Memo and and one that I don't know has been nurtured to its end to date is the interaction between criminality or someone who might have a history of civil immigration violations and who deserves to be protected. So it's this broader conversation about the narrative between know, who is a good immigrant or someone worthy of protection um, and who is the bad immigrant and what role does criminality play? But I think also for dreamers, the Morton memo was insufficient insofar that, yes, there was a factor that coming to the United States at a young age would be one of the factors considered for positive prosecutorial discretion, but it did not provide the kind of guarantee or consistency, rather, that anyone who came, for example, at a young age with a profile like your client would somehow be protected. I was able to catch up with my former client, Mandeep Chahal, to get her perspective. Hi, Mandeep. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Mandeep, when did you first learn that you were undocumented? Well, when I was 16, I wanted to get a job um, at Jamba Juice with my best friend from high school at the time. Um, And when I told my parents this plan, they finally had to sit me down and explain that I wouldn't be able to get that job at Jamba Juice, that I was undocumented, and that actually a lot of things that I was about to face would be pretty difficult because I didn't have papers, which is how they put it. Mandeep, do you mind if I ask how you felt upon learning that you were undocumented? To be honest, I really just put that information away. You know, I was in high school. I decided I would really dedicate myself to to school and my extracurricular activities and honestly tried not to think about it and thought that it would go away. Mandeep, your case is the first documented use of the Morton Memo on Deferred Action. What was it like to find out that the Morton memo might apply to your case? It felt like everything up to that point had been kind of us just throwing all of the information that we could gather about why my mom and I deserved to stay in the U.S. at the government and that it really, none of it was landing, none of it was sticking, that the story didn't matter. All they cared about was the cold, hard facts of the case. And then when this came out, kind of specifically highlighting that people who came here when they were young, people who were pursuing an education, et cetera, deserved a second look. It felt like maybe this was something concrete that would actually stick. And it was kind of this last ditch effort. It was the weekend before I was supposed to board a plane. We already had the plane ticket. I had already packed. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, it kind of felt like this Hail Mary. What happened after you were granted deferred action? Did deferred action actually legalize your status? I was 
granted deferred action for one year. And right before it expired, DACA came out also on a Friday afternoon in June. After I was given DACA, I actually, after a few renewals, I ended up uh, getting my green card through a slightly different process. My high school sweetheart proposed and um, we got married and that's kind of what has led me to today. I do have my green card and uh, actually just applied for citizenship. That's amazing. Congratulations on applying for citizenship. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. So it's been a long, long road, as you know. Given your experience with deferred action through the Morton Memo and DACA, do you have any concerns about these policies? Well, I think the Morton Memo and other policies like it are band-aids. You know, our immigration system has not kept up with the times. It needs to be able to absorb complex cases like mine. The Morton Memo and other policies like it are just a a band-aid on a system that's really broken and that needs a comprehensive overhaul. Immigrants shouldn't have to work this hard to contribute to a country that they love and that they want to live in. Unfortunately, despite the widespread support for dreamers like Mundeep and Anu, DACA has been another victim of U.S. partisan politics. For example, President Obama's attempt to expand the program in 2014 to include the parents of dreamers was blocked in court. Later, the Trump administration attempted to end DACA in 2017. In response to that Trump administration attempt to end DACA, the court stepped in. The Trump administration was sued by several states in the University of California system in an attempt to prevent the termination of the DACA program. And most recently, in the summer of 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court recently sided with a lower court in blocking the Trump administration from ending the DACA program based on the executive branch's failure to follow certain procedures that would account for the reliance interests of DACA recipients under federal law. I wanted to understand what reliance felt like for Anu and asked him for his reaction to the Supreme Court's decision. This is what he had to say. For me, that's one thing that I really love about this country is that it's okay to openly debate. It's okay to have these dialogues. I think that decision speaks a lot about this country, regardless of the reasons behind it. Whatever the future may hold for me, I will always be thankful for what this country has given me. How it has shaped me, and that can never really be taken away from me. And for that, I am forever grateful. One thing that I was going to say is that this has shown me how creative immigration law actually can be. And that, yeah, even when it looks like there's not a path forward for something that's really a complex and hairy and tricky and complicated case, that There are immigration attorneys who are kind of willing to forge a path where there isn't one and to find creative and rigorous applications of the law that benefit their clients. And I think that that's really powerful, right? Because I wouldn't be here if you hadn't been willing to do that. And so that's one thing that this has definitely shown me, how creative (laughs) you can be within the bounds of immigration law. Thank you again 
for joining us for Immigration Chats with Tejas and Kalpana. We look forward to seeing you at our next podcast. This podcast was produced by the team at Audio Muses. Special thanks to Allison E. Harker and Amita Ganatra. Music for this podcast is from Audio Jungle.